If you would go and be seated as our ushers come and collect the tithes and offerings and prayer requests of the congregation. Let me remind you again of, of what we're praying for. There's some confusion uh, about what we're praying for as it pertains to revival. Uh, I want to let you know we are, we are not praying for an event. I know some of us were, were raised on uh, church life where the church would, would have a revival service or services. And uh, those are great, but that's not what we're praying for. We're, we're, not, we're not doing that, where we have, you know, a special speaker, and then we do something on Sunday, and then Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying for a supernatural movement of God that revolutionizes the spiritual life of every believer in this congregation so that we shine bright in our city. We're praying for more than an event. We're praying for a movement. And when we, when we read Galatians 5, I read Galatians 5 this morning, I was mindful again of what it is we're praying for. We're praying that we'd be filled with the Spirit. Now, now some are, but many, uh, if they're honest, are kind of living along the edge, kind of the way I was this past week in my Jeep. On Thursday, I, I looked down and I knew I was almost out of gas. And then on Friday, this yellow light came on. Even in, even in my old Jeep, it has an emergency light that says, Boy, you better get some gas. But it wasn't until Saturday, Saturday, coming in on fumes, that finally pulled over and got some gas. Living on the edge, living on empty. That is no way for a Christian to live. Not with a Jeep or a gas tank or certainly not spiritually. So we're praying for revival. And so every week there's a different prayer for revival. So if you look in your bulletin every Sunday, go ahead and pull that out. Every Sunday there are different prayers. We have 11 prayers, six reasons that we pray for revival. This week we are, we're going to pray uh, this morning at the end of the service. We want to invite our leaders to come and pray that God would remove the obstacles. And then every day Please pray for revival. Pray that God would remove the obstacles from us experiencing revival. There's also a prayer focus that goes along with it. There's a discussion guide for families. And again, I want to encourage you, pray for revival. But remember, we're not praying for an event. We're praying for a movement of God. And a, a part of this is, has to do with the series that we're in right now, where we're talking about what does God's divine love look like in real life? And we've talked about marriage. We've talked about family. Last week, we talked about work. And today, we're going to talk about government, which makes me laugh because I wrote this series 18 months ago. And, and at the time, I set out verse 25 separately. And then almost six weeks, two months ago, I couldn't remember why. I couldn't remember. I was talking to our preaching team. I was like, why did I pull verse 25 out separately? Verse one of chapter four ties with verse 24. What, am, what was I thinking? What are we doing? And one of the guys remember said, oh yeah, remember you wanted to talk about the, the government and, and human thriving in specific systems. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So we started digging in to verse 25 and then this week happened and all the craziness, not just in our country, but worldwide. When you think about what happened at the United Nations this week and what Iran is talking about war, I mean, this is a crazy time, but we as Christians, here, we have hope because we have God's divine love. And we understand because of what God has said, what, what leads to a society thriving. Now, friends, we have to be very careful because these things that I've been speaking on the last four weeks can easily become idols, replacements for God. Marriage, 
family, work, government, we can easily start trusting in those things, hoping in those things, thinking that those things are going to be the answer to our ultimate issues. Listen, none of those things are good saviors. There's only one savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And we need to continue to place our trust in him. But as we talk today and focus on this divine love and how God's people are to function in society and with government, we have to understand that no government system is ever going to be perfect. Now, when Christ returns, there will be ultimate justice. There will be uh, this, this glorious provision of a perfect leader. But until Christ returns, God has delegated authority to the imperfect institution of human government. Now, because governments are led by sinful people, they will never be perfect. Despite their imperfections, though, Christians are commanded in Scripture to to be subject to government authorities. Very clear in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So understand, God, our perfect God, has delegated authority to imperfect institutions and people. And we are to respect and subject ourselves to those authorities. Now, our text reveals the importance of that, points to the justice of God, and reminds us that we're looking for something more. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's go now together to Colossians chapter 3 in verse 25. Tricky verse 25 that I now remember why the Holy Spirit led me to set it aside for today. Let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Come on up, brother, and pray or read this text. He got up early to read this text, by the way. He was here early for all 18 words, and they are all inspired by God. So go ahead and read them for us. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The grass withers and the flower falls, and the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. And he got up early for this, folks, so let's hear it for him, all right? Good job. <laughs> nice job. If you would, go ahead and be seated. Thanks again, Caden. Again, God's justice is perfect. Human justice, human government is and will be flawed. Now, the good news, the good news is that Christians, Christians can survive and grow in any government system. In the first century, yes, the Pax Romana, the the Roman peace was wonderful because there was transportation, there were roads available that the gospel could spread. But within the first four centuries, there were often on persecutions and yet the church grew. We can grow, we can be healthy in any government system. It might surprise you to know where they are saying right now the, the church is growing the fastest. Think to yourself, where do you think The church is growing the fastest right now in the world. Found out this week in an article, they are telling us that the church is growing the fastest in the country of Iran. Isn't that amazing? Now, I had heard it was China. 
It is humbling to think about. They're telling us, of course, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to count them. And of course, there's, there's, there's almost two billion of them. So it would make sense that there would possibly be more. But even among Southern Baptists, there are said to be more Southern Baptists in China than there are in North America. In underground churches being highly persecuted for their beliefs. God is at work in the world. He is at work in his people. We can grow, we can, we can survive, <coughs> excuse me, in any government system. But there are particular government systems where human thriving works best. And a government system is going to promote a specific type of society whether that be with tax breaks or, or other kinds of provisions, a government is always going to direct the society to pursue uh, policies that will provide for what the society experiences. And so what we see in Scripture, what we see in the Bible, is what leads to human thriving. Again, friends, this is not my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. I don't even care about my own political opinion, okay? I wouldn't listen to me talk about it, all right? So understand, I'm using my seminary train today. I'm going to speak where the Bible speaks, and I'm going to be silent where the Bible's silent. And we're going to get a little bit of an understanding, God willing, with uh, an understanding of history from a biblical worldview. But we're going to give you a lot of scripture this morning. So if you can't get it all, remember, this will be on the app uh, sometime uh, this week. Uh, but there's a lot of scripture right here, and it's important that we understand what the Bible says. So let's talk about this. Where do societies thrive? Understand societies thrive when there is personal responsibility. And the Bible commands God's people to take personal responsibility. God's people are to provide for themselves. They, to take personal responsibility to work if you're mentally and physically able. Uh, again, writing to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul said some really harsh things, and, and he couldn't be any more clear. This is what it says in first, uh, second Corinthians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Societies thrive when there's personal responsibility and people providing for themselves. By the way, panhandling is not a job. Work is where you work and are paid for your effort, for the product that you provide or that you sell or that you offer. Second, thinking about personal responsibility. Uh, that's people providing for family. 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is at the time, he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. He was commanding him and teaching him and mentoring him in how to be a pastor. And he spoke to the needs of widows in 1 Timothy 5 and said, clearly there are times when the congregation must utilize the tithes and offerings of the people to provide for widows. But if there is their family nearby, if there are family units there, then they are responsible. Look what he says here in 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Woo! This is serious. God commands that we provide for ourselves, that we provide for our families. But we are also commanded to provide for the poor. Galatians 2.10, the apostle is referencing a, a very important moment in church history that you can read about in Acts uh, 15. 
there was a, a, a council that was called together to talk about who could and could not be a Christian and why. And in the, in the process of that conversation, they talked about the importance of caring for the poor. And then, and Paul references this in, in Galatians 2.10 says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This, we are as Christians, we've been made rich by, by the gift of life given in Jesus Christ. We don't earn it, we, 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 we don't deserve it, but it's been given to us. And that's why we're generous people. That's why we give tithes, that's why we give offerings, that's why we care for the poor. We also understand that we have been commanded and we have been sent to do this. Jeremiah 29, seven was, was written during a time when the children of Israel were being held captive in Babylon and they were being lied to. There were prophets at that time who were telling the, the people of Israel, don't get settled down there, don't worry about those heathen Babylonians, just ignore them. God's about to bring you back home to Jerusalem where all the cool kids are. And God said, Jeremiah, go tell them the truth. The truth was and the truth is, is that Israel was going to be there for 70 plus years. But God sent them there and that they were to do something while they were there. Listen what, what God commanded. This is Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It's an in caring for the poor. It's an in caring for the welfare of our city that we find our welfare. Now, there are a lot of ways to go about doing that. And we have many of our membership who are pursuing wonderful opportunities. But we also understand this is not something that a lot of people think about. There are a lot of us who are raised in church to understand you're supposed to come, sit, listen, leave, and then go to the real world and do your thing. And then if you've got time, maybe show up next Sunday and sit, listen, sing, and leave. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christians understand that we have been saved by grace for a purpose. That's the reason why when you're saved, God doesn't immediately take you to heaven. Instead, he has a calling on each one of our lives. And one of those fundamental callings is caring for the welfare of our city that we've been sent to. You know, we have missionaries all over the world, all over this nation. And they've been sent there to live on mission. Friends, every single one of us have been sent to where we live. So if you live in South Central Kentucky, you've been sent here to live on mission. Now, Pastor Benny and the local impact board have done us a huge favor in helping us have opportunities and ways in which we can care for the welfare of our city. Hopefully you've got one of these local impact brochures on your way in. Pull that out real quick. There's an insert that you can fill out and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, and, and if you would, if you can, if you can commit to something today, go for it. Understand, in this brochure, there are four categories. Speaking to every possible potential person in our membership. So there is a category for individuals. There's a category for families. There's a category for groups. And there's a category for rooted teams. So here's the deal. That's everybody in our, in our membership. You're, as an individual, you can do a short-term or a long-term uh, service in, in our city. As a family, a married couple, uh, married with training, parents with children, you can do a short-term or a long-term. They're all listed there. Uh, for a connect group, we need to be on mission together. You have that opportunity. And if you're enrooted, you're going to be doing a, a project for the welfare of our city in hopes that you'll stay in that group or connect in another, and this will become a normal part of your life. This is not the be-all, end-all of how we can care for our city. It's an easy step. 
It's an easy way for you as an individual, you as a family, you as a connect group, or you in a rooted group can begin to, to do the work that God has called you to do. You've been sent here. You're not in this city by chance. It's providence. You live in this time. And God has work for all of us to do. And it's important that we begin to do that as soon as possible. So look, sign that up. Take it to Nest Connect. If you want to wait, that's fine. Go to our website. You can click on there. There's a URL there on that um, brochure. You can go online. You can sign up electronically. Also, if you look in the brochure, you'll see email addresses for the different projects. You can directly email those team leaders and let them know, hey, I'm interested, and they will respond to you this week and get you going. Again, this is, this is not optional. This is not something for, you know, the special Christians of the congregation. This is for every child of God who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We have been saved for a purpose. We have been sit here for the welfare of our city, and we are to provide for the poor. And lastly, when we think about personal responsibility, let me give you one more category, and that is providing support for justice. Again, Paul continued in his description and demand of how we are to function under governing authorities. And then Peter, listen, this passage in Peter, Peter was writing to people who were under different government systems. He was writing what is called the dysphoria. They, are, they were people who were sent throughout different parts under different languages, under different headings, government systems. Listen what was said. This is Romans 13, 5. Therefore, one must be in sub subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We are to be subjected to the authorities of government, Period. Period. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, again, writing to those who had been sent out and they're in different systems, government systems, different languages, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to, uh, it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Bottom line, there is, there is human thriving in society where there is personal responsibility. Second, societies thrive when there's personal reward. When there's personal reward. Listen, the reward is being able to enjoy the fruit of your labor. And the psalmist wrote that, Psalm 128, one through two. It's not that we should ever feel guilty and there, there is now in our, in our system and really worldwide in different places that people somehow should feel guilty because they've worked hard and because they have acquired resources. That's not something to be ashamed of, certainly not something to be embarrassed of, something to enjoy. Psalm 128, beginning in verse one. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Now, we have to be careful in a capitalistic system that we do not fall prey to greed. There is always going to be the temptation amongst capitalists to, to think that, oh, we need more, we gotta have more. All those commercials are telling us what we deserve more, we ought to have it our way. We need everything, everyone is a need, that's a lie. We gotta be careful. At the same time, we don't need to be ashamed because we've been given the privilege and responsibility of stewarding resources and the privilege of, of not only enjoying them, but notice this, of giving them. See, one of the great honors of having property, of having resources, is that we get to enjoy the honor of helping others. 
James just tries to make us feel outright silly for not caring for the needs of other people. Listen to how he describes this in James chapter two, verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for this body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What he's basically saying is, hey, you know, I care for poor people. I hope it works out for them. And you don't do anything for them. You are not doing what God expects you to do. Now, in saying that, I I want us to be very careful. See, the Christian impulse is to help the hurting. It's to seek justice for all. It's to encourage responsibility. But friends and young people, children, I want you to hear me very careful. Young adults, I want you to hear me very careful. There is today a work where there is, there's a group, there's a, there, there's a movement, I would even say, of those who are trying to say that Christianity equals socialism and communism. And that is not true. There is a drastic distinction between those two. I've read way too many books on this this week and I've, I've studied way too much on it. I'm just gonna sum it up in saying this, okay? Socialism and communism, what are they? Socialism is the state ownership. State ownership. Government owns business and industry. What is communism? It's the fulfillment of socialism. The total elimination of all private property. Can I tell you something? When you read the Ten Commandments, you're going to fall upon one of these commandments that says, thou shalt not steal. Now, in order to steal, that means you have to take from something someone else owns. So what we're being told today is we need systems where people don't own anything and where there's going to be a, here's the phrase, distribution of wealth. Now, who's going to choose that? Well, rich people who don't have those laws apply to them. That's what socialism and communism is. It's a robbing of the joy of giving. So I sum it up in a single statement. If you want to know the books I read and the articles I read, email me. I'll send them to you. You'll just want to take my word for it, I'm sure. (laughs) Theoretically, the two systems share the same ideals and philosophical framework. Communism simply takes socialism to its logical final uh, consequences. When you take just a quick glance back the last 150 years of history, here's what you'll find. Here are the facts. You will find that there has been caused by these two systems over 100 million deaths because of either real or artificial famines, where the government would say, there's a famine, and there wasn't a famine. It was just a work to try to take out a, a certain uh, people group or, or, or religious sect or people of a, of, a, of a distinct language or what have you. Or there, there is a genuine famine, but because of the way the system works, it doesn't provide. Understand that there have been dozens of nations that have been destroyed And I find it fascinating where there is often socialism and communism. Here's what one author said. People are forced to live behind brick and mortar walls guarded by armed soldiers to keep people from fleeing the man-made paradise of social equality. If you look at history, what you will find are people fleeing those places because they have been destroyed. Because without personal ownership, without a love and a reward of gaining and giving, it becomes becomes a hoarder's paradise. And there are those who are broken by it. And there's a destruction of resources. And in the end, ultimately, the church is pushed out. 
where you find socialism and communism, you find a church that is being pressed out from the mainstream. And we have to be so careful with that. So listen, owning resources and being free to give them is a great personal reward that leads to human thriving. The reward is not just in gain, but what is especially rewarding is giving. Third thing, societies thrive when there is personal respect. I'm gonna hit this real quick, Romans 13, 7, 1 Peter 2, 17. Romans 13, uh, very clear. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Again, 1 Peter 2, 17, very clear. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the, um, honor the emperor, honor the government, respect the government, respect those who are in authority, respect what has been placed over you. God has delegated it. When are you supposed to have arms? When are you supposed to raise up against that? I don't have a clue. That is above my pay grade. All I can tell you is what the scripture says. Where there's human thriving is where there is a, there is a personal responsibility, there is personal respect, there is personal reward in, in giving and gaining. Now, what we know and what we see and what we complain about is the fact that all of these systems that are supposed to be so great keep failing us. Have you noticed that? I know here in the United States, every four years, someone else stands up and says, I will be the perfect leader. And in all the years, we have yet to have one. And yet we still desire one, don't we? We still want to believe that there is a human being that will provide what we ultimately desire in a leader. Can I tell you there has been one that he was promised? Let me, let me, let me explain him to you. Go to your Bibles. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Let me tell you about the perfect leader that the, that the Bible promised would come and who has come. We usually only read this scripture at East, I'm sorry, Christmas, but here we are. The world longs for the perfect leader. Who is the perfect leader? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, describes him. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And then here are the descriptors. The descriptors. So here we are. The world longs for the perfect leader who is, first of all, always trustworthy. Why is Jesus Christ always trustworthy? Because he is wonderful counselor, mighty God. We can trust, trust Jesus to be our wonderful counselor because he guides us in truth. God provides all we need to be wise because Isaiah 28, 29 is true. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Jesus has given us his word. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yes, he is trustworthy. He has given us his spirit. John 16, 13. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he is a mighty God. He accomplishes his plan. Nothing can stop God. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? None. God's plan is perfect. He knows what is best for you and for me. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I love John Newton's response to that text. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. God knows what's best for us. He gives to his will. 
and we can always trust his will is best. As we pray and as we pursue him in God's word, God will provide. And he is trustworthy and he's always loving. Write it down. The world longs for the perfect leader who is always loving. He is the everlasting father. God never stops loving us. God never stops being God. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is perpetual in his concern, and he makes us his children. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is always trustworthy. He is always loving. And third, he's always just. What is the output of his leadership? Look at the last part of verse six. He is the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He is the commander. He is the keeper of peace. He provides perfect justice. He gives peace to those who repent and subject themselves to him. Do you know Isaiah 26.3? Please tell me you know Isaiah 26.3. You need to get to know Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When you trust in him, he provides peace because he's the ultimate leader. He loves you. He's telling you the truth. He's guiding you in truth. He does that by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now understand and write it down. Under Jesus, God's design will be restored. Partially now. See, under Jesus Christ, we can pursue and recover God's design. That's what happens when you're saved. Think about it. When you repent and believe the gospel, when you see your sin and the brokenness it causes, and you say, you know what? I'm done trusting in me. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ, the one who has paid for your sin and overcome the power of death, now empowers you and me to recover and pursue God's design right now. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true. When you trust in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right now. Right now, you're free from the punishment of sin. Right now, you're free from the power of sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live in obedience to Christ. And he will liberate you. He will strengthen you. But not finally and fully. See, there's still one more step. We understand reality because we understand the Bible. The Bible explains what's going on in our world. What has been, what is, and what will be. We understand through Scripture, the one story that is the Bible, that God created all things in harmony. But because of our sin, there's a fall, and now there's brokenness. And so now everything is falling apart. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the rescue. And everyone who believes in him will gain new life. Now we're looking forward to the final chapter. Now we're looking forward to the ultimate justice. When will that happen? At the restoration, when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus Christ returns, perfect leadership, perfect government, perfect policies, perfect society, perfect systems. What will it be like? We got to read about it. Go to the end of your Bible. Go to the very end. Go to Revelation 21 and 22. <coughs> John, on the Lord's day, was on the Isle of Patmos, and God showed up and showed him 
what was to be. And this revelation concluded with these two glorious chapters. Beginning in verse 21, John was shown and now reveals to us in the revelation what it will be like when Jesus returns. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, no more chaos. Sea is symbolic of chaos in the revelation. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. It's a wedding day. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus Christ is going to return. And everything that is will be burned away. And only those who have subjected themselves to his grace and authority will live in his kingdom. And in his kingdom, there will be perfect peace and life eternal. Go to Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Are you a servant of the living God by grace through faith in Christ alone? He's the leader you're looking for. He's the one you need to be voting for. He's the one you need to say, I am going to give my allegiance to you no matter what the system of government I'm under, no matter what society says. And in that moment when he returns, perfect peace. Friends, come and receive Christ today. If you're a Christian, come today and pray for revival. If you're a Christian, Come pray for an awakening. Come pray for your country. Don't pray for politicians necessarily. Don't pray for policies or parties necessarily. Pray for an awakening. Pray for people to be saved by the millions. Pray that God will do a work. I'm going to come pray for a revival. Let's stand together. Lord God, we need you. We're asking you to enable us to care for the welfare of our city. We're asking you to save. We're asking you to do a miraculous work in our hearts and to revive us. Hear your church as we come and pray, as we sing of that glorious reality that is to be. This is our revelation song, God. We worship you. Come and pray as we sing about it together.